This is the Legal Lounge from Lanyon Bowdler Solicitors, where you'll hear about many aspects of law in England and Wales with special guests, industry experts, and local charities. Here's your host, Amanda Jones. Hello and welcome to Season 3 of The Legal Lounge. If you haven't heard the shows in the first and second seasons, there's plenty of content worth a listen, with conversations and advice about divorce, injury claims and business partnerships. There are also some excellent episodes where you'll hear from local charities and learn about the amazing work they do. You can listen to these shows on your podcast app or by visiting lblaw.co.uk forward slash podcast. I want to give my house to my children in my lifetime. Am I wanting to have my cake and eat it? In this episode, private client solicitors Edward Rees and David Pugh discuss why this is such a complex area and the importance of taking professional advice. Hello, I'm Edward and I'm joined today by my esteemed colleague David Pugh, uh, who I've been working with for nearly 10 years now, David, on a, on a daily basis. And um, this may be why uh on the last podcast I did where I referred to Neil as being one of my most favourite colleagues ever. I made you a little disgruntled by that reference because I treat you now more like you're a member of my family and therefore ignore you uh, than treating you as the valued colleague that you actually are. So uh, it's great to have you here today. Yeah, indeed. Thanks for that uh, fantastic welcome, uh, Edward. Um, I don't know where we go from here, but uh, we'll, we'll certainly try because I believe we've got a very interesting topic that we're talking about today. Yeah, what, what I wanted to really focus on today was that scenario that we have a lot where we have people ringing up coming to see us and the starting point is along the lines of I want to give my house to my children and it comes up a lot we've had that kind of discussion with people for years all the time I've been practicing as a a lawyer and what the client tends to think at the beginning is going to be quite a simple subject quite a quick discussion actually unfurls into a many-layered discussion. It's almost like an onion and you're peeling away at the layers. There's lots of things going on there. And I know you've experienced this a lot. You've had quite a few appointments where this topic comes up or people have booked in to see you to talk about this. Certainly I have. It's nearly a weekly occurrence. And I know us uh, solicitors, we do get a bad rap at it every so often for overcomplicating things. Um, But you're absolutely right. it is not a simple issue uh, to deal with. It's not just simply a yes or no answer. There's many things to consider. And I think we're we're going to run through most of those considerations to make and really try and advise uh, our listeners as to whether it is something that it's even worthwhile thinking about, let alone actually wanting to do. So I, I think it's a good idea now to just yeah, let's just ask the question. I've come to see you, Edward. You know, I want to give my house to my children. I am concerned. I've, I've got quite a bit of money in the bank. I think it's a good idea. If I give children now, I'm not going to pay inheritance tax. And they've got it in their names. Surely that'll make things easier. Is that the case? Well, that's the, the starting point. Is that a good idea? And um, if people are thinking in terms of inheritance tax and they're having that kind of a conversation with you saying, I want to give it away, they're probably aware that if you gift and you survive for seven years, then an asset falls out of your estate. And we've had a, we've done another podcast uh, where we've talked a bit about that. So you're dealing with a client who has a certain amount of knowledge. Uh, they're concerned about inheritance tax. 
uh, maybe they're concerned about other potential threats to their capital. But the starting point, you know, backtracking a little bit is, is this a good idea? So you've got to, like we've been talking about before, strip away the layers. What are the objectives? What are the concerns in the client's mind? So inheritance tax, that's the first thing, maybe. So should I give my house away to plan for inheritance tax? I've heard that if I gift and I've, I survive for seven years, the asset falls out of my inheritance tax estate. Is that a good idea in relation to my house? Well, there's a number of reasons why we'd say that isn't a good idea or you should think really, really, really carefully. And probably by the time you've done your thinking, you're probably not going to do this. And the first reason, and it's really the chief reason in the inheritance tax world, is it's really probably not going to work. So you give something away and if you carry on deriving a benefit from it, it doesn't matter if you've lived for seven years from making the gift or if you've lived 21 years from making the gift, there are rules about gifts with a reservation of benefit. And if you give the house to the children and you carry on living there, you're reserving a benefit. Well, unless you pay a full market rent for your occupation. And who wants to do that? Who wants to remain in their own house that they've already spent their own capital on and then effectively pay, pay rent to, to stay there? And even that in itself is a risk. You know, what happens? The day comes. I can no longer afford that rent. And we're not just talking an arbitrary figure. It has to be full market value. It has to be full market rent. So you can't just agree a nominal sum with your children. So, yeah, the risks, the risks with that are absolutely massive. And that is just one aspect of it, as you've said, Edward. We're not even just looking at practicalities of gifting, (laughs) gifting the house to your children, because there's many practical reasons why you wouldn't do that. So, yeah, other practical considerations to take into account is your children's own circumstances. What happens if your, your, your child is married and, unfortunately, after you've maybe gifted your house, they start divorce proceedings? Well, they've now got an, ass, an extra asset, which is your house. How, how will that impact you? Could be absolutely massively. What happens if that child goes bankrupt? Again, that, that's another asset within their estate that will have to be taken into consideration. So those are only two of the practical reasons why it's probably not a good idea to do it. No. And oh, what if the child dies? Yeah. So, you know, this is not just... I think people have got to take a step back when they're thinking about the house and using it as a planning tool. Because it's not just planning for a tax on your capital, such as inheritance tax. You've got to step completely back and say, this is my home. This is my house. This is not just capital. This is not just an asset. This is where I live. This is the roof over my head. So it's not only my home, it's my security. And my personal view would be, it'd be the very last thing that you would use in this kind of, frankly, quite aggressive planning strategy. The other thing as well is that if you gave it away to the children outright, like we've been talking about, we've talked about carry on living there. So that's not going to do anything from an inheritance tax perspective if unless you're paying a full market rent till your dying day. But then once you've given it away, well, if you sell, if you need to move and the property's sold, it's the children's asset, isn't it? And they don't live there. So you've lost that principal private residence exemption from a capital gains tax perspective, which you have if you own it and you live there. So, okay, you take that into account in your deliberations, but it's just one more factor, one more level of complication. Pretty much 
in all cases we're saying to people either do not do that or maybe we say well you can do it but you do it against our advice and practically always we wouldn't get involved in a transaction like that would we no we so that's not 100 percent of the time sometimes we might do but but we'd be very very careful be very hesitant to do so for for some of those reasons we've just mentioned. And even if we do go back and look at the inheritance tax in a little bit more detail, sometimes it's actually advantageous to uh, have the property remain within your estate because for the last number of years, since uh, 2017, we've had an additional inheritance tax threshold And that is actually directly in relation to your residence, which passes on to lineal descendants. So on to your children, on to your grandchildren. And that's quite a valuable exemption to to have. The the current rules provide that an individual can have an extra £175,000 if they've got that equity within the residence, effectively can pass that tax-free on to, to a child. And if you combine that with a couple, that's £350,000. So if you've got a £350,000 property, you can nearly guarantee that going to the children tax-free. Why would you look to give away this potential very valuable asset during your lifetime when it may cause you more harm than than good? So this is the the residence no-rate band, and this is not as well-known maybe amongst the general population or the... I don't know, the, the, the finance page reading, um, you know, literal educated uh, classes as much as the standard nil rate band. And this is the thing that George Osborne introduced back after the Tories won the 2015 election. And it took a couple of years, didn't it, to get it through a couple of finance acts. It's quite complicated, but the upshot of it is between a husband and wife or between registered civil partners... £350,000 extra allowance before inheritance tax bites provided they jump through a number of hoops. Absolutely and it certainly uh, provided their tagline of we're now giving couples up to a million pounds to play with before inheritance tax. It's a bit more complicated isn't it than just a, than a headline of a million pounds between couples but because of these hoops that you have to jump through. A very broad brush strokes approach that's what you've got isn't it really it, it is and t- to be honest we could probably uh, do a podcast on, on on the various reliefs and exemptions themselves so I, th- I think we could probably park it <laughs> park it there and I think one of the, the things that we certainly see when clients do come to see us the actual main reason they think about giving away the property is because of their concern of having to pay for their own care because care is means tested and hence if you own a property that is getting taken into consideration so obviously the the main thought from most clients is well if I gift that now well that's outside of my estate which we actually know it's not from what we've just discussed but they believe by doing that they won't be assessed on that and You've probably guessed it from the way that we've already been talking about this. That's not quite the case, is it, Edward? No, you're right. This is more often than not, once you start having the conversation and you're stripping away the layers, what you get to is that probably the client you're talking to, when you've taken into account all their allowances and the spouse exemption and everything, that inheritance tax 
probably isn't going to be a problem or isn't going to be the problem they thought it was. But the concern then is care fees. If I have to go into care, what kind of effect is that going to have on my capital? I'm going to have to pay for it. It's going to be really, really expensive. So I'll describe it as a knee-jerk reaction uh, is if I give the house away, then it's going to be fine because I will no longer have to be assessed on that as being part of my capital. And one of the, there are a number of myths about that. I mean, the, the, the first is that if I do it and I survive for seven years, then it's a bit like inheritance tax or the perception about inheritance tax. No longer can that asset be taken into account in looking at the capital that I own if I did have to go into care. And that's that's all wrong because the seven-year rule relates to inheritance tax. It doesn't relate to anything to do with the subject of care fees and planning for care fees and being assessed on your capital. And so if you had to go into care and you were assessed on your capital, there are certain things that are disregarded. So for example, if you are a married couple and one of you has to go into care and the other one of the married couple is still living in the matrimonial home, then the whole of the value of the matrimonial home is disregarded in looking at the capital of the spouse who is going into care. So that's really, really important and people don't often know that. But the assumption that if I've given my house away and I then go into care and I'm assessed on my capital, that the value of the house will be completely disregarded because I no longer own it is not correct. And that's because there are rules about deprivation of assets and they don't have a seven-year clock running against them. In actual fact, if you've given your house away, there is a strong risk that a local authority in looking at your capital could go back any amount of years not limited to seven, and, and argue and argue successfully that the reason why you gifted the house to, in this scenario, to the children was because you were trying to plan, avoid care fees. And either, depending on the amount of time between the point that you gifted the property and when they're looking at it, set aside the transaction or just assess you so that you've got to pay as if you have that value in your estate still when you don't. So deprivation of asset rules mean that if somebody comes to you and says, gift the house, that's the way to deal with it. I can guarantee that that's going to work and it's going to get you out of this problem. If they say that they can guarantee that, that's wrong. You can't guarantee it. There's no such thing in life as a guarantee, Edward, as, as we well know. But certainly in this case, uh, you know, absolutely cannot fault that, cannot argue that uh, whatsoever. And the rules surrounding deprivation of assets, yeah, it's something that will always be looked at very harshly by the local authority. Um, we, we've just explained that it's only very, very limited circumstances is there an, an inheritance tax advantage to, to gifting your home and that is involving paying full market rent. So the argument of there is another reason for uh, gifting my children or gifting my house to the children during my lifetime doesn't really cut it. I cannot think of too many other arguments that could be raised by an individual as to why they've done it. Although I have had one or two clients say to me, 
is it not easier if I just get the transaction done now? And again, the answer is no, because it will add more complication on actually dealing with your estate in any event, meaning a lot more tax uh, forms to have to complete, etc. So from my perspective, I, I cannot really see any good reason why why you would actually do it. I'd, yeah, I'd, I'd agree with that. Um, and that point about, uh, because there are people out there who will market this kind of a scheme. Actually, it's a bit more complicated and we'll come, I'll come on to that in a second. But there are people who market these sorts of schemes and say, oh, well, the, the reason why you would do this is because it's going to make it easy for your children. And my experience is the same as yours. It doesn't. You just have a load more extra forms yeah. to complete, uh, a lot more complication. It may not mean that you have to pay extra tax. It may not mean that you have to pay extra charges, but the actual implications for winding everything up after you've gone are, in my experience, that there's more to it if you go down that road. That point you made about, you know, most things in life, there are no guarantees. This is one of those areas. And unfortunately, you can't guarantee that gifting it in that way will work. I mean, it might do. It depends on a whole load of factors. But what we couldn't do is put a stamp on a scheme or a plan and say, we guarantee this will do what you want and and mean that you don't have to pay care fees ever. Now, one of the things that then comes up when you have this discussion is, okay, well, I'm not going to gift the house to the children outright because you've told me all of these downsides to it. I'm going to leave it. But I have heard that if I don't gift it outright to them, but instead I gift it into a trust, that's the way to deal with the problem. That will fix it. You might think it would be the case because it's not going outright to someone and everybody, when they, they hear the term trust, think trust can do everything and anything under the sun. <laughs> and from my experience, yeah, there, there's some absolutely fantastic trust arrangements that you've got as much discretion to deal with any assets with, within the trust. But when, it, again, it comes to putting your house, remember, your home, your principal asset, where you intend to live for the rest of your days, then, again, the simple answer is uh, no. There's absolutely no guarantee that uh, settling your house, transferring your house into any type of trust arrangement will obtain the desired results. And I think, Edward, uh, you more than most know or have come across a lot of the pitfalls with trust arrangements uh, and house and uh, principal residences and have had to try and untangle these or certainly deal with the issues that have arisen. Yeah, that's absolutely right. We've seen a lot of these kind of schemes either from other practitioners who've recommended people enter into them or just legacy trust if you like that we've inherited and in some ways there are good things about them because if it does work then it's great if you've transferred your house into a trust years and years ago and you did it when you were relatively young and then you've gone into care many many years later it might be the case that the local authority are not interested and they see that the house is in the trust it happened a long time ago and you have met your objective. It's just getting back to this point that we can't guarantee that that works. But in my experience, generally administering these kinds of trusts, either as they, are, you know, as you're going along during the lifetime of the people who've transferred the property into the trust, who let's remember are still living in the property, or when they die, and that's the point at which the property is sold, or when they go into care 
and maybe that's the point that the property is sold or just unpicking them because there comes a point where the people say you know what this is just too complicated and I don't think I want it anymore the level of work involved and complication it is far more than I suppose people might have expected when they entered into the arrangement unless they go into it fully apprised about the level of admin that's involved if you're dealing with these things properly and you're ticking all the boxes in terms of compliance and they know exactly what the implications are when they die or when they sell but you know for example you put a, your house into a trust and you carry on living there we already talked about that gift for the reservation of benefit issue from an inheritance tax perspective so you you know, you've still got that with a trust you may not have an inheritance tax liability as a result of it but you might have a lot more reporting to do when you die so that's just one example of of compliance every 10 years you might have to report the value of the property to the revenue you might not have to pay inheritance tax depending on the value you might do uh, but 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 even just you might have to report it and the level of admin that's involved in that and the record keeping and they're coming back to it you can't just do the trust put it in a draw and forget about it until you die or until you sell trust registration that's a new thing that probably wouldn't have caught um a lot of this a lot of these kind of trust arrangements in the past but will catch them from september this year uh, so extra work extra compliance there and also making sure that you've set the trust up or you're managing it in a way that you're not going to cause a capital gains tax problem if you sell you've got to manage that really really carefully and it might involve having to have license agreements so you who've lived in this property and owned it for years brought your family up in it you've then put it into the trust you might even be a trustee of the trust but you're living there you're allowed to live there uh, but you have to enter into a license agreement with the the trustees of the trust so that you can preserve your capital gains tax principal private residence exemption so lots and lots of stuff and not always there'll be many people who've entered into these kind of arrangements who at the end of it would say do you know what that met our objective and we're really pleased that we did it but there may be a lot of people who would say the level of compliance and compliance in in this kind of area or in the area of trust is getting greater and i don't think it's going to get it's not going to dwindle it's not going to be something that reduces the level of red tape so a lot of people would probably say at the end of the exercise it wasn't you know the level of admin the level of compliance was such that it became a sledgehammer to crack a nut it was disproportionate to the the actual objective so that's just some observations based on my experience in in this kind of area so trusts are good things uh, but i'm i'm skeptical about it being a completely positive experience for everybody when they enter into one of these kind of arrangements so generally speaking we would be telling people either not to do it or to think really really carefully and make sure they understand all of the downsides potentially as well as all of the potential positives before they before they go down this route absolutely and i suppose we probably should rewind it a little bit back from from there and to actually think well people want to come and do this or or believe that they should do this because of 
the potential to play care fees. And that question in itself would obviously suggest to me that there is a real issue that people will have to fund their own care and pay their own care. So that sort of brings us to look at, well, what are actually the the rules or the legislation in place at the minute in relation to paying care fees? You know, when do you have to pay them or why do you have to pay them? So I think looking at the legislation at the minute, any individual, and I mean any individual, that has got assets of over £23,250 will have to fully fund their care until they get down to that level. And once they start to go under that level, they will start start to get assistance from the local authority. So that that's pretty much where we're at at the minute, isn't it, Edward? Yeah, that, that's a fair summary of where we're at at the moment. But of course, subject to that point I made about the the disregard of the house where we've got the spouse, the there. other spouse yes. still living there. And, that, and that, that's really important. And, and again, you want to kind of dial down the fear factor in this i think to some extent because people are concerned about this it's genuine concern and they're they're right to think about it and plan for it but i think it's probably fair to say that most people even if they're worried about this most people will not end up in care and most people if they do end up in care won't necessarily end up in care for such a long period that it sees their estate completely wiped down to that £23,000 level that we talked about. And the other thing I suppose is that, again, from experience, and I haven't got any hard data on this, but most married couples, and and married couples might be concerned they both have to go into care. But most married couples, in my experience, they can just, they can manage whilst they're both still around. And this is more of an issue after the first of them has died. They've both been able to muddle along, support one another, and then it becomes the issue after the after the first death but there are the rules are the rules are changing and or they're meant to be changing so you summarized nicely where we're at at the moment twenty three thousand two hundred and fifty pounds if you're above that you've got to pay uh, for all of your care the plan is that that will adjust that upper capital limit will adjust to a hundred thousand pounds and the plan is that that comes in from October 2023. So we've got another year and a half to go, practically. The other thing that's happening is that there's a lower limit below which you have to pay presently nothing towards your care. So when you're assessed on your means, because you're assessed on your capital and you're assessed on your income, the lower limit at the moment is 14,250. So if you're below that at the moment, then you you have to make no contribution whatsoever. That will be rising, or that's the plan, to £20,000. The big potential game changer is that there is going to be a cap on the amount that you or anybody in England will need to spend on their personal care during their lifetime. That's what we do not have at the moment. So as well as those thresholds changing, there's going to be a cap on the maximum amount you would have to spend. Uh, And that's going to be, or the proposal is that that's going to be £86,000. So it's not in yet. Again, that's proposed to come into effect from October 
2023. But I do believe there is a bit of a caveat to that £86,000. And I think <laughs> this is where we will really have to see next year how this truly is implemented. Because I believe that £86,000 is for the direct care element of the care package that you, you're receiving. So it doesn't include a lot of the incidentals or accommodation costs of the care home or residential home that you may be in. So it's going to be a fascinating topic to keep involved in and to keep ourselves updated in so we can advise our clients to the fullest on it. Uh, So I think only time will tell how beneficial this truly will be to the average person. Yeah, well, again, David, you you told me to go away and research all this stuff, and I didn't need to because you know it all yourself already. I, I was going to say we'll have to go on some courses, but you clearly need no courses, you need no continual professional development in this area. But you're right, there are a number of factors about this cap that I'm a bit concerned about. The first is, like you mentioned, the personal care costs angle. So what will not be included in that £86,000 cap will be what you're paying for the kind of hotel accommodation element of it. You'll be responsible for your rent, your food, you, your utility bills. So they are not going to be, that, those aspects of the costs are not going to be taken into account in determining your accrued payment towards this cap, if I could describe it in that way. And, and to try and be fair, because, you know, if you're, in a, if, you're, if you're living at home and you have a care package at home, uh, you might be paying rent. You might be, you know, you you will be paying for your food. You will be paying for your utility bills. If you're in a care home, of course, you're paying for all those things indirectly, but you're not paying them directly. You can't specifically quantify them, I suppose. So as I understand it, from my reading of it is the plan is that there would be a notional amount uh, per week that would be taken into account for those personal care costs. So, you know, if you were in a care home, for example, so the proposal is, the plan is that it would be £200 per week at 2021-2022 prices. Okay, so because we're in a period of, of inflation ripping away, even if that dies down a bit, maybe that will be looked at, maybe that will be revised. But if you multiply £200 per week by 52, I've done some maths, <laughs> I've come prepared. I, I, yeah, no, I got my calculator out and, and apparently £200 per week is, is £10,400 per year. Of your costs of your care, if you're in a care home, £10,400 per year are going to be taken out of the equation, aren't they, in determining where you're at in your accrued total towards this £86,000 cap. And the other thing I understand is that this running total that you're going to have towards this cap, it's going to only start to accrue from October 2023. So if you're already in the system, if you're already paying these costs, then anything accrued before 2023, October 2023, I should say, won't count towards the cap. So the headline is it's I mean it's a good thing. This is a this is a good thing. Well, I mean the flip side of it is we're all paying more NI as a result. But it is a good thing, but there's more to it than simply saying ah 86,000 pounds and that's the maximum I would ever have to pay. 
And don't forget as well, this is me being cynical, but then I always try to take a long view and sometimes I'm wrong. I will, I will grant you that sometimes I'm wrong. It is, yeah, it's, it's often known to happen. But, but if you take a long view, this £86,000 cap, how good is that compared with what, if you go back in time and you go back to 2011, I think it was, when the Dilnot Commission, they reported and they said there should be a cap and the cap they recommended was £35,000. And not only did they recommend a cap, but again, it's hard to, I've been doing some research and I've been going back and I've been trying to dig away at this. And my recollection was actually the Dilnot reforms, they were legislated and they were put on the statute books. I think I'm right in saying that was the Care Act 2014, that there was a cap and it it wasn't £35,000. I think I'm right in saying it was £72,000. But what happened to that? Because that was legislation, but we had a U-turn. My research (laughs) indicates that there was a U-turn around July 2015 where that was all suspended and then it didn't happen. So we've been here before. I can't remember exactly what the reasons were why it didn't proceed. But again, it wasn't the first time. The Dilnot reforms, the Dilnot, that commission, it wasn't the first time that a government said they'd look at it. Many times in the past, governments have said, we're going to try and fix this problem. Blair government said they were going to deal with it. That's going back to 1999. So I don't want to be negative, but we have been here before and there's a lot going on in the world at the moment. There's war in Europe. There's inflation, there's cost of living, there's all of that. So a government, when reminded that they've already introduced the enhancement to national insurance contributions, may well, in a year's time, when reminded that they're meant to be putting all this stuff into force, might say, oh, well, we've got bigger problems to deal with. And actually, we need that money for the NHS. But like I said, I've been wrong before because that residence nil rate band that we were talking about earlier for a long time, I was, it came in in 2017, didn't it? And for a long time, I was saying to clients or saying to everybody, oh, it'll, it won't last. Another government will come in and get rid of it. Or, uh, and it wouldn't necessarily be a Labour government that would get rid of it. It'll be any government of any complexion would just ditch this thing because it's far too complicated. It doesn't benefit a broad cross-section of society. It's going to go. It won't last. Don't pin all your hopes on it. But five years on, it's still with us. And there is no sign of it disappearing. So I am often wrong. Yeah, unfortunately. And it does happen to the best of us, of of course. So I've got to give Edward credit for for, for that. And I suppose quite a lot of this podcast so far has actually been reasonably negative. We've taken a negative approach to, to certainly the main question at hand. And I think now is probably as good as any time to actually let's look at the positive what can we or an individual actually do to help protect themselves or their family in relation to care fees and i I suppose one of the things that we're, we're just going to discuss now is actually again let's get back to the house let's get back to your house what can you actually do with your house to protect it or certainly protect as much equity in it as possible to pass down to the next generation or to whoever it is that that you want to benefit rather than the the care system so certainly from from my perspective i meet a lot of people with this question and invariably as you know my answer will be probably not and I will run through all the reasons why not. But 
I like then to give them that little lift me up at the end and say, well, this is what you can do. We can have a look at your will and we can offer you a strategy to protect as much of your property or your assets as possible. And I'm pretty sure you know what I'm talking about here, Edward. It certainly call, and I think many practitioners call them, uh, care-fee planning wills. So can you tell me a little bit about the, the care-fee planning wills, Edward? I can. Well, we like them a lot. We do. And you're right. This is, the, after all that negativity, after all the, oh, well, don't do that. It's, you know, we wouldn't advise that. Or, well, if you do that, sharp intake of breath through teeth. This is the positive aspect of things. Now, a lot of the theme of this podcast has been cakeism. <laughs> you cannot have your cake and eat it. So it's too much, I think, to think that you can just take the house, which most couples, that is their chief asset, and get that out of the estate and defeat the care system or defeat inheritance tax. But we can do something and we can do it with half of the matrimonial home and we can do it in a safe non-aggressive way it involves a trust but it's it's light touch i think that's a good way to describe it and it's neutral from a tax perspective and nothing happens until one of you dies so there's no gifting whilst you're both still alive it doesn't collide with that deprivation of assets problem that we were talking about before so essentially what you're doing is you're restructuring your wills so that instead of doing what most married couples would do in their wills on the first death, which is leave everything to the surviving spouse. Instead of doing that, they take the matrimonial home and you leave the half share belonging to the first of the couple to die, not to the survivor outright, but into a trust. And the terms of the trust allow the surviving spouse or the surviving registered civil partner to occupy that half share or enjoy the benefit of that half share for the rest of their days. So that's occupation, or let's say the survivor did go into care, or they moved and they were to rent the property out, the survivor would be able to enjoy the rent, the income from the property. So it's different from inheriting the house outright. After the first spouse dies, the survivor owns one half of the house outright, like they always did. And the other half, they have this right to the present enjoyment of it. Why do that if the survivor has to go into care and they're assessed on their capital? They only own one half of the capital. The other half is owned by the trust. And in that means test, the half that's owned by the trust, because it doesn't belong to the survivor, is disregarded. And it's non-aggressive. Like I said before, it's tax neutral. It doesn't cause a problem from an inheritance tax perspective it causes no problem from a capital gains tax perspective if we structure the will flexibly enough which we would always do if the survivor wanted to downsize they can they're not stuck in the house for the rest of their days ultimately if there's children the children assuming you want to leave your house ultimately to your children ultimately the children will get the house but the half that's in the trust will come through the trust of the first to die on the second death. And the children's interest doesn't crystallise until the survivor dies. So although the children might be beneficiaries of this trust, whilst the survivor is around, they can't have their capital. Not without the survivor saying they can. So it's a ring-fencing exercise. Flexible, light touch, 
We've done lots and lots and lots of them over the years. We like them a lot, non-aggressive, and that's invariably what we would recommend, isn't it, in this kind of situation? Very much is, and I think that's an absolutely fantastic explanation of carefree planning wills. And, and as Edward said, that the reason the surviving spouse wouldn't be assessed half share of the house is because they do not have the entitlement to the capital value. So that would be, I suppose, the only real consideration you have to make as a couple is, are you sure, are you happy that the survivor does not or will not require that capital value thereafter? So yeah, absolutely. It's a great way of ring-fencing that half share. Yeah, the only downsides that I can immediately think of to the exercise would be one this is a trust and therefore you'd have to register it, but not until the first death. So you do your wills, you're not required to register at that point. And the other point, I suppose, is that the survivor, although they don't own this half share outright that's in the trust, it is part of their inheritance tax estate. But that is no different from if they inherited that half share outright, it would be in their inheritance tax estate. And the reporting required at the time of the second death from an inheritance tax perspective is still fairly low-key, isn't it? It is. uh, No worse than if it was still held by the survivor in their sole name. So, yeah, I I think that's a great explanation, as I've said. Just picking up on that and the downside that you said, although this isn't what I would really call a downside either, there's one extra step that is generally involved with this type of will. As Edward has said, he's putting a half share of the house into the trust within the will on the first death. Well, to be able to actually have a half share to put in the first place, you have to have ownership of the property in something known as tenants in common. And that's whereby each of the individuals has an equity share in the property. The most common way we see property held jointly between spouses is what's known as joint tenants. And that is when they own the property together. It's owned as a whole. And on the death of the first, it would automatically pass to the survivor. And that would be irrespective of anything it's said in the will of the first to die, isn't it? Absolutely. That is the default position. It will have to happen that way unless some other restructuring is looked at at that time. And we would want to alter that if we're doing this kind of will, because if we've got a will that attaches a trust to the half share of the first to die, the last thing we want is the house just on the first death to bypass the will. Absolutely. We'd have failed in our job, wouldn't we? Completely halt to the insurers. <laughs> it completely defeats the pur- the purpose behind the will. So, in order to change the ownership of the property to this tenants in common, it's a document known as a deed of severance needs to be prepared. And more often than not, the property will be registered with land registry. This document needs to be sent to land registry along with another form which will change that ownership. And if you're ever inclined to have a look at your deeds or look at the office copy entry that's produced by Land Registry. If it's held as tenants in common, you will see these fantastic little words with this restriction on the property as no sale or disposition by a sole proprietor, which effectively means it cannot be sold by one of the legal owners. Yeah, it it protects the tenants tenancy in common. It denotes that there's a trust scenario in play 
But it doesn't say any more. It doesn't say any more than that. But yeah, you have to change from the joint tenants to the tenants in common for this process to work, for the trust to bite on the half share on the first death. And it's uh, absolutely key that a key part of the exercise but it doesn't alter anything does it whilst you're both still alive it it doesn't alter anything it has no effect on your actual use and enjoyment of the property and if you've got a mortgage at that time it has absolutely no effect on that you're still signed up to a mortgage you're still jointly and severally liable for so okay Uh, and sometimes people sever the joint tenancy because that's what we're talking about when you change from joint tenants to tenants in common and they might accompany that with a declaration of trust where they say actually we don't own this 50 50 we own it some other proportion, 2080 or 4060. So that's a situation where you would be severing a joint tenancy if you've got a married couple saying, we want to own the equity in these proportions, which they might do for a number of reasons. That's tenants in common, but it has to be accompanied by a declaration of trust or a declaration saying it isn't 50-50, it's this other split, whatever it might be. And that's important. And that's useful stuff for all the budding law students out there All the budding trainee solicitor applicants, if they tune into this podcast, they might give themselves some extra points in their application process if they know all that stuff. I would imagine so. I'd hope they know it all already. Well, I wish I had that knowledge when I I first applied for a contract, but certainly it is a very good place to start. Excellent. Well, thank you very much, David. It's brilliant to have all of your experience and your legal skill and all your fluency we are mere russell watsons to your luciano pavarotti thanks to edward and david for lending their expertise more proof that lawyers don't bite if you need legal help from either of them please get in touch through lblaw.co.uk if you have a particular legal issue you'd like me to put to our specialist for an upcoming episode please let me know by visiting lblaw.co.uk forward slash podcast Thanks for listening. If you found the conversations helpful, please remember to follow, review and share the episodes. And don't forget to go back and check out some of the shows from the other seasons. Speak to you soon. That was The Legal Lounge from Lanyon Bowdler Solicitors. Visit lblaw.co.uk slash podcast for helpful resources. And please do follow or subscribe on your podcast app so you never miss an episode.